0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 6. Just turn open there for a few moments. We're going to look at the first few verses of this chapter in Mark chapter 6. Uh, but a few years ago, uh, perhaps you are familiar with this story, but a few years ago, the Washington Post conducted a, a social experiment, uh, an experiment related to the relationship between context, perception, and priorities. And so they were wondering, basically asking the question, in an, in, the or, in an ordinary setting and at an inconvenient time, is it possible for beauty to transcend? Is it possible for glory to be made manifest? And so to set up the experiment, they uh, got a guy named Joshua Bell to go into the D.C. Metro and to set up shop. And he brought his violin down there and, and he walked in dressed in his casual attire, blue jeans, long sleeve white t-shirt, a Washington Nationals baseball cap, and he sat up against the wall, and he pulled out his violin, and he just began to play there in the D.C. metro, and he opened up his case, and he dropped some dollars in there to kind of prime the payment pump, and, and next, for the next 45 minutes, he played uh, some classical music, some wonderful uh, renditions of, of Mozart and others on his violin. And over the course of the 45 minutes, thousands of people passed by, not many of them actually noticing uh, what was taking place. Uh, most of them hardly ever looked in his direction. And, and it's interesting because had they stopped and paid attention, had they focused in on what was going on, they would have recognized that the young man uh, for the world-renowned uh, violinist that he was they would have recognized that he was playing not just some shabby violin, but a violin worth well over $3 million. And this is the same Joseph, but Joshua Bell, who just a few days prior to that uh, was part of selling out the Boston Symphony Hall. And he was playing the same music in the Metro as he played there. But the vast majority of people just walked by oblivious to the glory that was taking place. Although the seats in the Boston Symphony Hall went for about $100 a pop uh, over the course of those 45 minutes. And after an estimated 1,000 people walked by, $32. $32 given by a grand total of 27 people. Most of the people failing to see past the veil of context, past the veil of appearance. Just assuming that such glory would not appear in that type of place and in that type of person. So we hold that line of thinking in our minds as we step into Mark chapter 6 this evening because there's a very similar dynamic going on in this passage. Because as we walk through this passage tonight, we're being cued into how oblivious people are to the glory that was present in the person of Jesus. Because all throughout this gospel, Mark has made it clear that he, he's demonstrated and placed the accent on how God manifests himself in the person of Jesus, how God is at work in Jesus, how uh, Jesus was able to perform miracles and exercise authority that belonged to God alone. So Mark has focused us in on that clearly as, as we've seen him place the accent on Jesus' divine nature, showing his authority over over disease, showing his authority over nature, his authority over demons, his authority over death, and even his authority over sins and the fact that Jesus has the audacity to forgive sins in this gospel. And so that's where the accent has fallen over the past several chapters, showcasing Jesus' divine authority. But here in Mark chapter 6, the accent shifts a little bit. Because here in this chapter, Jesus returns home, and what we're reminded of is that this God who manifests himself in the person of Jesus, yes, he is divine, but we're reminded that Jesus is also human, and his humanity isn't a mirage. His humanity is true, and we're cued into this subtly but significantly, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. Check it out. It says, he, referring to Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, referring to Nazareth. And his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives and in his own household and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few on a few sick people and healed them and he marvelled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching so here jesus has returned home and most people that he interacts with on this occasion do not see god in him They assume that such glory would not appear in someone so ordinary. They assume that God's glory would not appear in someone so familiar. And so, on the whole, they underestimate Jesus. And since they underestimate Jesus, the tragedy is, because they underestimated Jesus, they were underwhelmed by Jesus. And as followers of Jesus in this space and in this place right now, we do not want to be the types of people who underestimate Jesus we certainly do not want to underestimate him and then tragically be underwhelmed by him. We want to focus squarely on the person of Jesus, recognizing his be- glory, recognizing God's glory in Christ. And so by returning home, Mark again is reminding us of Jesus' true humanity. He's taking us back to the place where Jesus grew up, how he, at one time, he was a young Jewish boy running around the dirty streets of Nazareth. He developed, he grew, he underwent the full gamut of human development that all of us ourselves have gone through. It's a strange thing to consider Jesus went through puberty. It's a strange thing to consider Jesus had bowel movements. It's a strange thing to think that Jesus had pimples and his voice cracked and changed. But this is precisely what it means for Jesus to be truly human. That God manifests himself in the person of Jesus, and the person of Jesus was truly human. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, we're cued into the developmental process that Jesus went, underwent. And it's described in a way that would have been true of many J- young Jewish boys and young Jewish girls who grew up in that day. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, we read that in Jesus, he increased in wisdom. He grew in wisdom. He increased in stature. He grew physically. And then we're also told that he increased in favor with God and with man. So you just consider that development. How the infinite God, if we're talking about God manifesting Himself in the person of Jesus, Jesus being fully God and fully human. Do you realize the, the gravity and the glory of what that means? The infinite God took on an, a finite body, and He, in some mysterious way, underwent the full process of human development. It's a it's a, a mind blowing reality. And it was a mind-blowing reality that the people of Nazareth couldn't get over. Because for his family and his friends, for all the people who were familiar with Jesus, the young boy who grew up in that town, they couldn't get over it. In fact, Jesus' humanity for them hid his deity. His humanity actually hid his deity. They looked at Jesus and they thought uh, they, they were unable to see the glory of God in him because he was so familiar to them, because he was so ordinary in their eyes. You see, when Jesus would attend a party or when he would go to a meal like we will do in a few moments, he looked like everyone else sitting around the table. He looked like a normal, ordinary, human person. But again, here's the mystery of the incarnation because not only uh, is Jesus' deity to some hidden in his humanity, if you and I look closely, if we square up on the person of Jesus, we'll find that his humanity actually reveals his deity. We'll find that his flesh uh, this body that God assumed when he took on flesh, it wasn't incidental to who God is, but it was actually served a revelatory purpose. You see, when God took on flesh and he dwelt among us, when he walked the earth as a human man, he was showcasing his beauty, he was revealing what kind of God he is. And this is one of the realities that used to mo- blow Martin Luther's mind as he would think about this dynamic. And he would say how in, the inner, how in the incarnation, when God took on flesh, the inner workings of, of God is revealed. His heart is disclosed in a way that contradicts everything that we are familiar with in the world. I mean, to consider that the sovereign God took on flesh, but he didn't just take on the flesh we would expect of a glorious person. Because God did not take on the flesh of a king. He did not take the flesh of someone in the ruling party. He took the flesh of the son of a carpenter. And you see something of the humility of God in that. You see something of the condescension of God in that. You get a picture of a God who's willing to go there. And if he's willing to go there, if he's willing to stoop so low, then you and I can rest assured today that there's nowhere else God is unwilling to go. If God would be born to relatively an impoverished family, the son of a carpenter, not of royalty, and if he would be raised in a place called Nazareth, this podunk town that wasn't on anybody's radar as a significant place, if God was willing to go there, surely he's willing to go anywhere. And this is good news for any one of us who ever come across those moments where we feel insignificant when we feel overlooked, when we feel alienated by the world that we are a part of, when we look at the incarnation, we're reminded of a God who's willing to go anywhere. He meets us. He comes to us. He gets us. This is precisely what the incarnation speaks to. But again, the people in Nazareth were so familiar with Jesus, they couldn't see God's glory in the person of Jesus. His humanity hid his deity instead of revealing it. And as a result, they didn't believe in Jesus. They're plagued by unbelief in this passage, an unbelief that would later marvel at Jesus. You see, in their, un, in their unbelief, they underestimated the person of Jesus. This is what those line of, that line of questioning is all about. They ask about five questions there, beginning of verse 2. These, these questions, just as they're baffled as how this person, Jesus, could reveal the glory of God. He says, they said, after hearing him teach and being astonished by it, they ask, well, where did this... Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And so in those questions, they obscure the obvious because the answer to them should be obvious. They should be able to draw the conclusion that this Jesus is unique in his teaching and he's unique in the miracles he's performing, but that's not the conclusion they draw. Because when in our unbelief, we underestimate Jesus and we suddenly begin to obscure the obvious. We begin to draw conclusions about Jesus that are unbecoming of the glory of God in him. But then their, their questions step it up a notch in verse 3 because their questions then become somewhat condescending. He asks, they ask in verse 3, is not this the carpenter? Now, that's not so much an insult. It wasn't necessarily an, an ignoble profession to be, the son, uh, to be a carpenter or to be associated with that type of trade. But the next line was, I believe, an insult. Is this the son of, isn't this the son of Mary? Now, young Jewish boys were usually referred to uh, in reference to their father, but instead of saying the son of Joseph, they say the son of Mary. Now, Joseph may have died by then, but that doesn't explain why they would still say the son of Mary. The reason I believe they refer to Jesus in this way is because they're trying to point out what most people assume about Jesus, and that is he was born illegitimately that Mary had him out of wedlock. And so this is an insult. This is a condescension. And they're thinking, well, if Jesus, if his roots trace back to her, and we know the story about Mary, that, that promiscuous young teenager, if, if that went down and this is Jesus' origin, then surely God's glory cannot be present in him. And so they're raising this, they're asking this question of condescension. They're disclosing their unbelief, their unbelief in underestimating the person of Jesus, not recognizing his divine origins and not recognizing God's willingness to stoop so low for the sake of redeeming us. So they ask these questions and then they go on to, he goes on to identify his family. They're again speaking to the familiarity with Jesus and and all, all this showing how the family did not believe that God was at work in Jesus because God could not take on flesh and he would not take on flesh in this kind of way. And then it comes down to this little sentence there at the end of verse 3 when it says, after, after laying out these questions, it says, and then they took offense at Jesus. You might want to circle that word offense. They were offended by the things Jesus was saying because his teaching, no doubt, qualified his miracles. His teaching, no doubt... Uh, affirmed the fact that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, that he is the Savior who has come into the world. He is the one through whom God is at work to bring about redemption. And they're offended by this. They're starting to put it together and, and they take offense. Now that word translated offense there, we, we get the same English term that we uh, use as scandal because that's what is getting after here. They, they were scandalized by what Jesus was teaching they were scandalized by the claims he was making. And they were scandalized by the miracles he was performing. They took offense at Jesus. And this doesn't mean something soft like they simply disagreed with Jesus. This means that they had a gut reaction to his person. They reacted viscerally against him. It's a violent image. It's, a, it's an aggressive image. They were scandalized and took offense at Jesus. Now, we want to consider this this morning, this evening, because if you and I are ever going to get to a point where we begin to behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus, we have to deal with Jesus as he is. But the challenge of that is if you are going to deal with Jesus as he is, you will at some point and on some level be offended by him. If you've never been offended by Jesus, you've never dealt with the real Jesus, If you've never been offended by Jesus, then you've only been dealing with a figment of your own imagination. You've crafted him to an image that is tameable to you. You've crafted him into an image that you can control, that you can manipulate. You've never dealt with the real Jesus unless, on some level, you've been offended by him. This is what Jesus does. He he offends everyone. We've seen this happen all throughout the gospel. He's offending the religious conservative Pharisees and he's offending the more liberally-minded Sadducees. Everyone is taking offense at this person named Jesus who's saying the things that he's saying and he's doing the things that he's doing. He's offending everyone, only he's offending them in different reasons. This is why Jesus would say later in the gospel of John that the world hated him and the world rejected him. You realize you and I are a part of the world, right? We're cut from the same cloth. And so if the world rejected Jesus, if the world hated Jesus, there's something in us that also wants to reject Jesus, that also wants to hate Jesus. There's something in us that Jesus will inevitably offend. And the question is, are we humble enough to receive the offenses that arise within us? Are we humble enough to handle them correctly See, the problem is when we deal with the real Jesus and we focus in on this, this Jesus who's fully God and fully human, who said the things that he did and accomplished the work that he did, when we deal with the real Jesus, we have to make sure that we're dealing with the Jesus we need and not the Jesus we want. Because we do not, we, the Jesus we need is not always the Jesus we want. And you think about the way that you want to be saved generally. Generally. Generally, the way the human heart wants to be saved, we, we do not uh, handle this kind of Jesus very well. You just, I'll just give you a few examples. There, there's a lot within us, that, a lot within us that wants commendation without contradiction. We want God to come to us and then just simply commend us in every way. We certainly do not want Him to contradict us. This happened earlier, for the sake of time, I can't get into it, but in Mark chapter 3, you can go back and read verses 31 through 35, and you will see how Jesus's family, his biological family, came to Jesus thinking that he would prioritize them above everyone else, that they would receive this commendation from him, even though they did not believe he was from God. Instead, they believed he was insane, that he's lost his mind, and Jesus doesn't respond to them. They're described as being outsiders, and instead, he points to everyone who's drawn near to him in that moment. He says, this is my... My family, those who are doing the will of God. And in that moment, he doesn't commend his own bio, biological family. He contradicts them. He contradicts their expectations. He contradicts their cultural assumptions. And this is what he does to all of us on some level to some degree. Although our heart wants commendation without contradiction, Jesus says, I'm going to con- contradict you so that I can commend you. I'm going to contradict you so that you can be brought into the reality that I've created, the reality as I've defined it. I'm going to contradict you so that I can commend you. But he doesn't commend us without contradicting us. But then at the same time, our hearts, not only do we want commendation without contradiction, we want redemption without repentance This was a big assumption in the first century when Jesus stepped onto the scene in Galilee and he began to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. All of the Israelites were expecting redemption in that moment. And they understood redemption to mean that the Messiah would come in and kick out the Romans. But when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he didn't just bring in that type of redemption. Instead, he preached repentance. And so the Israelites didn't know how to, how to understand that because it wasn't what they wanted. They wanted redemption, not repentance because repentance means that Jesus was going after something inside of them. It means that Jesus was going after something about them that he wanted to change. And so although we want redemption without repentance, Jesus says if you're going to step into the kingdom of God, the first word of that move is to repent and to believe the gospel. We want Although we want redemption without repentance, Jesus says redemption does not come apart from repentance. So the first word he says to these Israelites is to repent and to believe the gospel. And our hearts do not respond to that well. We don't respond to that well because to repent means to admit that we've been wrong about something. To repent means that we've been wrong about our understanding of reality. To repent means that although we've tried to chart our own course through this world, Jesus is saying there's something about that chart that's off. And if we continue to chart our own course, that course is not going to end well for us. So in grace, he comes to us in the person of Jesus, and he says, repent. He says to change. He says to turn, to stop going your own way and come at it God's way. Recognize life through the person and the work of Jesus. So although we want redemption without repentance, Jesus says redemption only comes through repentance. And our hearts are offended by that usually. But then lastly, perhaps our hearts, uh, the Jesus we need is not always the Jesus we want. Because many of us want a salvation without sacrifice or without substitution. We want a salvation that comes to us not through something as grotesque and brutal as the cross. And what's interesting about this language that's used here, this word offense, it's the same type of language that Paul would use to describe the cross later in the New Testament. You get into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. Paul's talking about the cross as being this stumbling block, as being this offense to people. That there were many people who looked at the cross and the glory of God was hidden from them because they looked at Jesus on the cross and said, That's foolish. That's brutal. That's unnecessary. My salvation can come another way. It's not going to come through sacrifice. It's not going to come through someone dying because I did something wrong. I'm just going to do everything right. But then there are others in that same text in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 that look at the cross and they don't see it as foolish or folly. God's glory isn't hidden in it. God's glory is revealed through it. His wisdom is found there. So that we come to understand more about who God is through the death of Jesus on the cross. So we look to the cross and we see the power of our salvation. We see the necessary sacrifice for our sins to be forgiven. We see justice in the cross. We see mercy in the cross. We see grace in the cross. We see wrath in the cross. We see wisdom in the cross. We see faithfulness in the cross. We see hope in the cross. We bank everything as followers of Jesus upon his death on the cross. And it is his death on the cross that is quite offensive to many and it's his death on the cross that confuses and bewilders many and causing us to underestimate Jesus, causing us to respond with unbelief. There was a guy by the name of John Dixon who was in South Africa one time uh, communicating this message. He was speaking at a college in Sydney, Australia, and, and he was describing this gospel, describing Jesus' death on the cross. Immediately after he finished talking, there was a Q&A and a, a Muslim man approached the, cro- uh, approached the microphone. And he looked at Dixon and he said this, he said, How preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe should be subjected to the forces of his own creation? That he would have to eat, sleep, and go to the toilet, let alone die on a cross? And Dixon heard him and he said to him in response, Or... or He said that the guy's remarks were intelligent and clear and they were civil. And then the man went on to argue. He wasn't really asking a question. He was making a point. He went on to argue saying that that whole line of thinking is illogical. To think that God, the cause of all causes, could have pain inflicted on him by any lesser being, that's absurd. And so Dick... Dixon thought for a minute, but he couldn't come up with a knockdown argument. You can't really uh, tell it, you can't really persuade that in that moment because what this guy is saying is precisely what Christians believe. And so, in the end, he looked at him and thanked him for communicating the Christian message so clear, affirming the distinction that exists between his faith and the Christian faith. And then he said this He said, What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy. The Christian holds precious. God has wounds. This is the God that we find in the person of Jesus. This is the God that we find through the death of Jesus, a God who has wounds, a God who takes our place, a God who, a God who is willing to die for our sins. This is our hope. This is our life. And if we're honest, this is what our heart resists, Because we don't like what the cross has to say about us. And some of us don't like what the cross, what they misunderstand the cross to mean about God. And so we take offense. But Jesus says the cross is our salvation. His death is for us. Therefore we look and we see the glory of God in the person of Jesus dying on the cross. We recognize that his wounds there serve our healing His wounds there serve our hope. His wounds there disclose his desire for us ultimately. And you are cued into the desire of Jesus towards the end of this passage where you find in verse 5 this disappointed Jesus. You find him saying, or we're told that Jesus could do no mighty work there in Nazareth except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. But then he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went among the villages continuing to teach. Now, it's an interesting Phrase there, and it's cast in the negative, but if you flip it on the positive and you discover that Jesus wants far more for us than we want for ourselves. Jesus always wants far more for us than we want for ourselves. This is why he's willing to contradict us. This is why he's willing to call us to repent. This is why he's willing to take our place on the cross. He wants more for us than we want for ourselves. And because of this, you get this dynamic. You, you see his disappointment in this passage. Because he wants more for us than we want for ourselves, he's disappointed by unbelief. He says that he marveled at their disbelief. and this, doesn't, this isn't a positive description. He's marveling. He's bewildered. He's dumbfounded that these people are rejecting him. They're not believing him. And it says that he could not do mighty works because of their unbelief. Disappointed he didn't do anything there. In the parallel passage of this story, found later in, Ma- or in the other gospel, Matthew chapter 13, when this pa- when this moment is described, Matthew says this. It says, "And Jesus did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief." So, Jesus, so Matthew just says that Jesus did not do any works. Mark says that Jesus could not do any works. And so you put that together, and I think what's going on here is that Jesus could not because he would not. He was disappointed by their disbelief. He could not do more miracles because he would not do more miracles. They did not believe. They underestimated him. They did not trust him. They did not see that Jesus wanted more for them than they wanted for themselves. So he's marveling here. But there is one other instance in the gospel where Jesus is described as marveling. Whereas here he marvels at disbelief, there's another instance where Jesus marvels. Only there he's not marveling at disbelief, he's marveling at faith. There was a centurion, a non-Jewish man, came to the Jewish Messiah and asked him for help, believing that Jesus could speak a word and heal his family member. And when that moment goes down it says Jesus was mar- marveled at this guy's faith in Luke chapter 7 verse 9 when Jesus heard these things he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said I tell you the truth not even in Israel have I found such faith He marvels at disbelief and he marvels at belief Jesus is disappointed by disbelief but he delights to honor those who believe this is what we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Those who come to God in Jesus, they find reward, they find blessing, they find God delighting to honor the faith that we show. And as we said last week, our faith doesn't have to be perfect. We're not talking about a perfect faith. We're talking about a present faith, a mustard seed faith. God honors by moving mountains. God honors by bringing redemption. God honors by bringing salvation, not because our faith is perfect, but because because faith is present. He delights to honor those who trust him. And it is faith that helps you and I see the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus. It is faith that prevents you and I from underestimating Jesus. So let me ask you this question as we kind of bring this to a conclusion. Let me ask you as an individual, are you underestimating Jesus by persisting in unbelief? Are you underestimating Jesus by persisting in your unbelief? If you are, let me encourage you, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your unbelief. Put your faith in Jesus. Not a perfect faith, not a fully formed faith, just a mustard seed faith, a little bit of faith. Push it in Jesus' direction and see what happens. But then I want to ask a question of our church because, because I think there's a temptation for those of us who are following Jesus right now. There's a temptation for even now for us to underestimate Jesus So I want to ask us as a church, are we underestimating him? Are we underestimating Jesus? I think we may be underestimating him if we never actually take steps of faith as a congregation. We may be underestimating him by never telling people the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection because we do not really believe that his story is capable of changing someone's life. I think we may underestimate Jesus when we Refuse to live generous lives with our time and our talents and our treasures. We kind of hold back from him because we do not really believe that in the gospel it is better to, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I wonder if we're underestimating Jesus by the dreams that we have for our church in this city thinking, well, Seattle's been burned by churches. There's people who've been hurt by churches. they are churches that, that don't really grow uh, fully now or vibrant now as some have grown in the past. It just seems to be so hard and so callous and so unbelieving. Is there any hope for us in this city? Are we underestimating Jesus by not taking strides of faith, believing that God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine as he brings his kingdom to bear on us and through us in this city and around the world? As a church, I do not want to be a people who underestimate Jesus and then are tragically underwhelmed by Jesus. If we're going to go out, we're going to go out swinging in whatever venture we do. We're going to fight the fight of faith. We're not going to underestimate Jesus. We're going to trust him for anything and everything in the life of our church, whatever that may mean for us in the future. So let's don't underestimate him. Let's not settle for a Jesus who could not because. He would not. Let's not settle. Let's not sell Jesus short for what he desires to do and what he's capable of doing in us and through us as a people here in the Hallows Church, living and loving in the city of Seattle. So let's pray in that direction, and then we'll move on. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to elevate the eyes of our faith, to fix our eyes on the crucified and risen Christ, to see your glory in the person of Jesus Let it not be said of us as individuals and let it not be said of us as a church that you could not because you would not. We pray that you would not be disappointed in unbelief, but that you would delight in honoring those who trust you and believe in you as imperfectly as we do, as inadequately as we do sometimes. We pray that your grace would abound and that you would do exceedingly and abundantly more in us and through us for the sake of your name among the people's present here in Seattle and scattered around the world. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.